0: Now, it's time for the NSCAA podcast with Dean Linke. The National Soccer Coaches Association of America is the go-to resource for soccer coaches of any level. From advocacy, education, and networking, the NSCAA has something for everyone. Join the world's largest soccer coaches organization today. Now, here's our veteran soccer broadcaster, Dean Linke
1: hello and welcome to another special nscaa convention episode of the nscaa podcast i am dean Linky, and once again we go inside the 2017 nscaa convention and talk with people who will be moving and shaking in Los Angeles next week. As always, we open with a marquee U.S. soccer superstar. This time, it is one of the all-time great U.S. women's national team members, former captain and Hall of Famer, now a lead analyst for ESPN, Julie Foudy, who will give the keynote at the Women's Coaches Breakfast on Saturday in Los Angeles. She kicks off the show. Charlie Slego will replace Amanda Vandervoort, who, by the way, will be on next week's show. As the end NSCAA president at the convention and Charlie, one of the greatest promoters of soccer, including college soccer, will follow Julie. The NSCA continues to advocate for all its members and leading that charge now is their chair, Sue Ryan, and she is on the show. On Thursday night, as part of the college coaches awards reception at the convention, former UCLA national champion, Olympian, and pro soccer player Zach Ipsen will share his story about how he was knocked off his path by a terrible addiction to crystal meth he was homeless went to rehab came out nearly 10 years sober now a father a husband a teacher and a coach he shares his amazing redemption story from there we focus on youth soccer and nutrition with a featured presenter in la angel pinnels who is the media spokesperson for the academy of nutrition and dietetics he has two presentations in la that will be fantastic And we end with a look at the pro game and a fascinating visit with Michael Rabaska, the director of high-performance development for Toronto FC. His job, the first of its kind at the professional ranks in North America. We cover it all, and we hope you enjoy it. And we start with USA Women's International Superstar and ESPN personality, Julie Foudy, after this message
0: the NSCAA is 75 years strong and continues to provide quality service and benefits to soccer coaches. Whether you're a youth, high school, college, or professional coach, the NSCAA works to be a voice for you. Speaking of voice, once again, here's Dean Linky.
1: And we kick off this edition of the NSCAA Podcast Convention theme with one of the most recognizable, iconic women's soccer players of all time. Julie Foudy finished her illustrious U.S. national team career with 271 caps, serving as the team's co-captain from 91 to 2000 and the captain from 2000 through her retirement in 2004. She is an inductee into the National Soccer Hall of Fame, and a lot of people know her now as a big-time reporter and color commentary (laughs) for ESPN, among other things, my good friend Julie Fowdy. Julie, great to be with you.
2: Big time. Thank you. You, That's that's more more props than my mom gives me,
1: Dean. (laughs) Well, you deserve it, Julie, and... uh, i tell you, I've known you for a long time. I don't know if you remember, but uh, I was with you and Anson and that young team back in the early 90s getting ready for the 91 World Cup before people really knew what you guys were doing. And boy, how far we've come, huh, Julie? A long ways. Oh,
2: my gosh. I know. I remember that. <laughs> the, the, the World Cup that people still don't know we won in 1991. World's best-kept secret right there.
1: Yeah, big-time team, though, phenomenal players. In fact, arguably the most talented women's team ever. When you think about that uh, triple-edged sword up top with Karen Jennings and April Heinrichs and Michelle Akers, pretty, pretty phenomenal.
2: Yeah, it makes me sad that so many kids never got to see those three play that much you know Uh, you're you're right like three of the best forwards in the world all right there on our front line
1: well julie um you have certainly taken advantage of your platform with espn and particularly with a strong message for women in sports women coaches women athletes girls as well and you know you've always been a part it seems like of the nsca convention whenever you can be and you will be the featured speaker at the women's coaches breakfast tell us why you felt like it was important to come back yet again to be a part of the convention
2: well it helps when they move the con- the convention west, Dean, which is always a bonus for me. I'm on the west coast. I'm not, I'm near LA, so that was awesome. But no, I have actually been been wanting to join that women's breakfast for a while, and and just haven't been able to. And the convention is is like as you know, it's it's a huge reunion. It's so much fun. It's you know people that you've played with or have been coached by or have just you know, done business with over the years. And it's, it's so much fun to see everyone and especially the, the breakfast for the, for, for women on, on Saturday there. So um, I've, of course, been to the breakfast, but I've never given the keynote. So uh, I'm excited to be able to do that.
1: Well, another thing you told me you're excited about is uh, you're almost finished with a book, which you compared to giving birth to your third child. Uh, tell <laughs> us uh, tell us about the book and when it's coming out, Julie. Oh,
2: uh, That child needed to come out. Uh, <laughs> I, about two years ago, I uh, was over the holidays. I was looking through all these old documents on my computer and I was like, gosh, I had written a ton for the old ESPN Rise high school website on team building. And, Dean, as you know, I do leadership academies in the summer, these uh, these camps that combine both sports and, and leadership for girls. And it's all about finding your voice and being confident. And there, it's really fun, empowering things for, for young women. And so I said to ESPN, gosh, we should – it would be so easy to write a book if we just interviewed like 10 really cool women and we wrapped all my leadership thoughts around those interviews. And um, and immediately the two women at ESPNW said, yes, 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 let's pitch it to Disney. So we pitched it to Disney Publishing. They have a publishing arm. And I literally went into Disney Publishing and said, you know, look, my, my, my young daughter, um, I won't let her read your books <laughs> because they always, you know, the mom dies, you know, the woman saved by a man that's a prince and has to kiss him to be saved. And I just felt, felt the messaging was way off. So I said, why don't we do something like raw and real and authentic and not princessy and, uh, and let me write it. And so they did. I can't believe they actually said yes. Um, so I spent, you know, the last year writing and interviewing, and we actually shot all the interviews as well. So we interviewed all these really cool women like Robin Roberts and Jessica Mendoza, who became the first woman to broadcast as an analyst, you know, the MLB, Major League Baseball. She's former USA softball player. Uh, Mia Hamm, you might have heard of her, <laughs> um, and Alex Morgan together. So we went around the country shooting all these interviews, and and it and then we we put it all together in the book. So it was fun, but it was that. I, have you ever written a book, Dean?
1: I haven't written a book. I feel like uh-huh. I could, though, Julie. But it won't be half as interesting as yours. But what's the <laughs> what's going to be the title, Julie?
2: Everyone should do that once in their life. They should have that child. Um, <laughs> the title is going to be "Choose to Matter: Being Courageously and Fabulously You." And it's about you know it's it, it does have a, obviously some sports in it in terms of not X's and O's, but just lessons I've learned from playing and stories from our team. But it's it's mostly about, you know, having the courage to, to be different and think differently and raise your hand and step out of your comfort zone and fall and get back up again. And all these, you know, wonderful lessons I think you learn through sport um, that you can apply to life. But most importantly, it's not just about being fabulously and courageously you it's about then passing it on and empowering other people to do the same and oh. doing some type of community service in your community, so which is all the things we do during the summer during for our leadership academy, so it's based off a lot of that curriculum and it's interactive and there's exercises and it's silly and so i'm I'm super happy with it I'm, I can't wait for it to it doesn't come out until May.
1: In May. Okay. So in the meantime, where can we learn more about your academy? Because I'm sure that there we can learn about the book when it comes out as well.
2: Yeah. JulieFoudyLeadership.com. We do the, the summer academies in three different locations because summer is actually when I have to really work for <laughs> ESPN because <laughs> we do World Cups and Olympics and all that. Although this summer we have none of those, no Euros, no World Cups, Olympics. So it's actually a nice summer for me. Um, but we do those all over the, the East. We do one on the East Coast, uh, one, we just moved down to uh, a, a school outside of Atlanta, Georgia, Darlington School, and then one uh, in Northern Cal at Menlo College.
1: Fantastic. 271 caps. you have two or three special memories during that entire time, Julie?
2: Oh, gosh. You know, I think probably my favorite memory is, and people think I'm always going to say, you know, a World Cup or an Olympics. I think it's just hanging with the gals and laughing. I mean, there was, as you know, Dean, I mean, that group was crazy. It was (laughs) a bunch of crazy women in a good way, you know, a healthy crazy. And so we just had so much fun. I look back on those days and think, God, we were laughing everywhere. We would go into restaurants. We would take them over. You know, we, thank God, there wasn't social media back then. Um, We would go into bars, and we would be up singing with the band by the end of the night. So it was a fun, fun group of women that... Um, not just, you know, we're great as athletes, but also great human beings and people who care deeply about the game and passing it on to other people and other, other women and getting more girls involved. And so I miss that, I think, the most. That's, that's my favorite memory is, is, you know, that camaraderie. You just, you can't replace. I and mean, we talk about that whenever we get together it's it's a sisterhood that that is so hard to find once you leave the game but is always there as I tell them they're stuck with me forever
1: well and you were certainly a leader of that group as well and so much fun and boisterous and hardly Princessy as well on the field I love that <laughs> about you about you Julie for sure and you know thinking about uh After that, you know, WSA was phenomenal, still the best league that was ever created for women's soccer. I think the WSA lasted three years in the WPS, and now the NWSL kind of passed that three-year threshold, talking about adding some teams. As you look at uh, where NWSL is, how important is it to have a stable professional women's soccer league in this country, Julie?
2: Oh, it's huge. I mean, it's huge for the national team. It's huge for young kids um, it's huge, not just for young girls. I think it's so important for young boys to see that as well. These women, you know, playing professionally, making a living playing professionally, I think it's healthy for society. So I love that the Federation, our U.S. Soccer Federation, you know, stood up and said, look, we're going to, we're going to help fund this and help support it and and grow it. And so, um, and to your point, you know, they passed that critical three-year threshold. That's the other two hadn't. And I think you know that's why this iteration, of course, is different is is you have that federation support um, which which helps, of course. and and it gives confidence to MLS teams that you know they can they can jump in. And I think we're at a, a place in history with MLS in a time where there are so many teams who think, okay, I can now lift my head up and say, okay, what's next? I think when you're starting, you know like in in when we've had the first league you know so many MLSTs that was such a new league it's hard to say okay I'm gonna take on a whole nother uh, entity onto to our new business and now they're able to do that and they have the infrastructure and they have the staff and they have everything in place and so that's a, a much different equation so um, I I'm I'm just so happy because you know you 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 see players um, that come through that wouldn't you know, look at Crystal Dunn, who gets cut from the 2015 World Cup team and comes back that next season as MVP, uh, scores a ton of goals, and, um, you know, and has another life because of the league, uh, and then is, is a star on the national team today. So, those type of stories, similar to the Abby Wombachs back in her day with our, with our league, um, are what give them another life.
1: So well said. Julie Fowdy's voice, a powerful one. And with that, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk to you about fairness and equality, as it's a big topic right now with the U.S. Women's National Team. I think it was even a big topic even back in your days, a few uh, tough meetings that uh, we won't go yes. into. I don't know if you'll slide those into <laughs> the book or not either. But, you Getting know, yeah, right now, though, that's a big issue. What's, what's your take on that fairness and equality issue?
2: Well, I, I, I think the Federation would say and you know, I've talked to Sunil, Sunil would say, the president of US soccer would say, Yes, they do deserve more. Um and and we will get there. We'll get there in the negotiating process. I, I think part of what happened with the women and and mind you, US soccer has made some great strides as you mentioned Dean we we fought and fought and fought with them over the years you know to support the team market the team and fund the team and and now you know US soccer is the standard for all other countries in terms of how they support their women's team having said that that's a standard that's a very low bar because of the way they support other women's teams around the world which is terribly done but they have done a much better job but they're not there yet and I think they would admit that Um, and, and a lot of it has to go back to that, you know, there, there's these contracts we sign are four year deals when they, when they sign their CBA, their collective bargaining agreement. And so they would argue as they have been U S soccer that look, we signed this last one in 2012 and the team wasn't as popular and they, uh, they hadn't won the Olympics. They hadn't won the world cup. And, yes, they are uh, making money, which is great, and they're much more popular, and that will be reflected in this new contract. So I think it's right for the women to ask for more because they do deserve more. Um, But I do think U.S. soccer will get there. I, I think... They just, the women's team just recently let go of their lawyer who was representing them, Rich Nichols, which I think was actually a very good move because that was a, a a pretty contentious relationship between U.S. soccer and him, and it wasn't moving forward in the right direction. So I think that was a good move by the women to get different counsel. And hopefully, you know, with the CBA just ending at December 31st, they've come to an agreement that they'll carry on in good faith and make things retroactive. They can they can get there without having to strike.
1: Finally, Julie, I promise, last question, so much enjoyed this time, though, but uh, you just called the College Cup out in Santa Clara as well, San Jose rather, and boy, college soccer, I mean, the parity right now, of course, I live in Chapel Hill and see Anson Dorrance all the time, and even the role college soccer's played in developing players, not just for the, our national team, but Mexico's national team and Costa Rica and Canada and so all many right. other teams as well. Your take on women's college soccer.
2: I, I just love that college cup because, you know, I, I don't get the exposure you get to the to women's college soccer um, as much. But when I call that college cup, it's a glimpse at, you know, what our future national team is, to your point, what other future national teams from other countries are going to look like. I mean, you get the best players from around the world wanting to play here in the United States. So and then to see what I thought was super interesting with this college cup Now, look at that West Virginia team and and the USC team, the diversity of that team, which was amazing to me. And and as we know, one of the challenges in this country is getting women of uh, lower economic areas or of color or of um, different ethnicities playing soccer and that it's always been a white, middle class, suburban sport. And so to see that West Virginia team and that USC team with all the diversity, I was like, yes, that is amazing. Uh, and to see how well they played, I thought, you know, West Virginia had a great game in that final, and, but USC was able to finish its chances. So I think it's, you know, for anyone who can come out and see those games, I mean, it's, it, just my daughter, for example, who's 10 years old, you know, she, the first thing when I called her, she's like, Mom. Who won? Who won? She didn't come. To, she couldn't come to the game, but it's great for the young girls as well.
1: Julie, I'll tell you what. Uh... I'll leave you with this. It's amazing because I started uh, in the late 80s early 90s with you and Carla Overbeck and Wendy Gebauer and Mia and Christine Lilly and that gang and then amazingly my oldest son and Carla's son Jackson played AU basketball together for four years and played high school basketball together for three years at the same high school. How small of a world is it, Julie? Uh,
2: Jackson. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. I know. It is crazy. I miss Carla.
1: Julie Foudy, so great to reconnect with you so proud of you and all your success uh you know on the air as a mom as a spokesman for for women and girls thanks for everything you're doing out there can't wait to read your
0: book julie thanks dean great to chat with you buddy The 2017 NSCAA convention will be unlike any before. Taking over the downtown Los Angeles Convention Center January 11th through 15th. Network with over 11,000 peers at one of the education sessions, the extensive exhibit hall, or one of many social functions, including the college coaches reception and the All-American Luncheon. With more space and unique experiences, you won't want to miss out on the largest gathering of soccer coaches and administrators in the world. Register today at NSCAA.com
1: the convention just a week away in los angeles and a man you will see everywhere is the incoming president of the nscaa talking about my former broadcast partner and good friend charlie slago now the tampa bay united soccer club ceo charlie thanks for being with us Well, thanks,
3: Dean. It's always great to hear your voice and uh, be able to talk with you.
1: Well, it's an exciting time. This is a process, as you know, that uh, you've got to put in your time with the NSCA before you become president. Talk about your decision some years ago to even run as a secretary to be a part of the opportunity to be a president.
3: Well, the NSCAA is such a a great organization. Uh, We have coaches, obviously, from the youngest, uh, coaching the youngest kids all the way through coaching pros. And been a member for a long, long time. Uh, I started, I think, in 1980. And I wanted to uh, be part of uh, the solution. And uh, it is a six-year commitment. Uh, you're secretary for a year, uh, which I wasn't very good at. I, uh, as you've seen me, I don't take a lot of notes, but uh, <laughs> I had to do it that year. And then you're VP for three years in a row and then become president for a year. So your fifth year uh, on the board, you're the president, and then uh, you're the immediate past president. So it's a six-year commitment and uh lots have gotten done in the uh, first 4 years and uh, that I've been on there and uh, hopefully that will continue uh, with me leading the board.
1: Commitment is something you're very familiar with. A dedicated coach at Davidson for 21 seasons from 1980 to 2000, then joining Castle, little stint with the Colorado Rapids, and now the Tampa Bay United Soccer Club CEO. So soccer's been your entire life. I want to go back to your time at Davidson. Incredible, incredible 21 years there. Charlie, what do you take away from your time at Davidson?
3: Well, hopefully, uh, I take it away and others do, that uh, the good of the game is what's uh, most important. Obviously, I wanted Davidson to win. Uh, We actually got to the Final Four, uh, which we called it then, before we found out we couldn't call it then, and then it became College Cup, uh, and we actually hosted it. Um, The the College Cup uh, in 1990 and 1991 was down here in Tampa. Uh, Not great crowds, maybe 1,500 people. And uh, fortunately, uh, Terry Holland, who was my athletic director then, uh, said that we could uh, bid for it. Um, We had it for three years uh, in a row on campus, Uh, had 8,000 in a 5,000-seat stadium the first year, and we actually were in it. And then the second year, 10,000, and the third year, 12,000. And I know, Dean, you've been down there. The town at that point was about 3,500. The uh, student population was about 1,200 or 1,300. So uh, we had a lot of people parked all over the place. It was Christmas in Davidson and it was uh, very exciting and it sort of took it to a new level. It went to Richmond and stayed at that level. And uh, so it's very important to me that uh, we have some showcases. And um, that's going to be one of the things I'll be uh, talking about uh, in my year as president of NSCAA, uh, trying to get uh, Get those big crowds again and uh, the excitement uh, around the College Cup.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, uh, if you've been listening to any of the NSCA college soccer podcasts, that will be music to the ears of Sasha Sorosky and Rob Kehoe and Bob Butehorn and so many others that have been trumpeting, particularly after a bit of a dis- disappointment in Houston for this last College Cup. So, Charlie, because, I mean, you are the true promoter. I mean, you are known as Mr. Promotion. You did the same thing during your time at Castle around the College Cup, right?
3: Right. Uh, what we did was uh, our showcase uh, tournament uh, was going on, and we added tickets to it, uh, charged a little bit more price-wise, got a good buy on the tickets, and uh, so it was full over at uh, the beautiful Wake Med uh, Soccer Complex over there in Cary, and um, it uh, had good crowds, Uh, it was a great stadium. Um, Yes, I would be right there to hopefully have 50,000 people at uh, the College Cup, but uh, you have to work at it in increments and and get it up there, and it's disappointing when uh, we have smaller crowds uh, and it's the student athlete experience is what the NCAA is looking for. And um, the student athlete experience to me, um, I don't really care how good the locker rooms are or uh, how impressive the stadium is. It's more of how many people are filling, how many seats. And um, I think that if you have 5,000 seats and they're full of 5,000 people, as opposed to the same 5,000 people watching in the 25,000 seats, the student athlete experience uh, is a little bit dulled by that. And so I think that they're, We need to fill those as much as we possibly can.
1: Well, that knack for promotion also led you to the PA booth, the broadcast booth, your own radio show as well. I did several games with you, Charlie, as part of the NSCA Game of the Week and even with the then-named Carolina Railhawks. So you really do like to do everything, right, Charlie?
3: I try. I try. uh, You're talking here with uh, the Tampa Bay Rowdies, uh, who obviously have one of the bigger names uh, in the United States as far as uh, that's going. They're the ones with the kick in the grass back in the – early days of the NASL, the first NASL. And um, I think that uh, the more you can do in your community, the better. Um, I'm actually going to be speaking uh, with some of the under-30 coaches um, that are going to be uh, at the convention. And my title is uh, Thinking Outside the Box. Or, uh, you know, And so if you're a college coach, if you just spend your time with just your college players and, and don't get out and, and be with uh, some of the professors and some of the uh, community people, and the same thing in a club, You need to get out to the Convention and Visitors Bureau. You need to get out and do some other things that promote uh, the area. The more you can do that, the the better off we're going to be soccer-wise.
1: Here he is, Charlie Slagle, the incoming president of the NSCAA with Amanda Vandervoort leaving. She'll be on next week's show. You've already talked about two initiatives you're going to try to put in motion as the president. That is figuring out a way to return the College Cup to its glory when you were so involved. And then also talking to the 30 under 30 about thinking outside of the box. What are some other kind of key initiatives you want to uh, integrate as the president of the NSCAA, Charlie?
3: Well, you'll see this in the next Soccer Journal because my first article is in there, and I call it uh, vertical integration and horizontal integration, or it could be vertical interaction and horizontal interaction. And uh, I one of the things we'd love to get done, and uh, we're working on it now with uh, the staff at the NFCAA, which is a great staff led by Lynn burling Manual. and what we'd like to do is have college coaches and pro coaches and club coaches open practices that uh, – like five minutes before people can come up and uh, the coach will talk to them. And these will all be listed on the NSCA website. And then uh, we're still working on the details, but if a a younger coach or a coach just wants to go see goes to 10 or 12 of those, uh, then they get a a certificate for that. And so you open the practice. uh, It's nothing big on this, but you, as far as the uh, college coach or the uh, pro coach, come talk for five minutes and then you just run their practice and then come by and say, are there any questions? I think that what, we need to have everybody see that the NFCAA is made up of coaches of all ability levels, of all experience levels, and to give back to um, the NFCAA and to the uh, sport of soccer is going to be very good. So that's my vertical integration. In the horizontal integration, we have too many uh, infighting going on, uh, you know, club soccer versus high school soccer, uh, uh, club uh, leagues and club uh, administrators uh, battling other club administrators um, as far as the leagues are concerned. And I think that um, the more we can work together, the better off we're going to be. And, um, you know, not battling each other, uh, but helping each other uh, make this sport as big as it possibly can be in the United States.
1: That was a great breakdown, by the way. I love this last line in your bio with. Tampa Bay United Soccer Club. It says Charlie Slagle is a firm believer in the concept of a full-service club, providing excellence for the recreational level through the competitive level, for the youngest youth in the program to the oldest, and from the least talented to the most talented. That says a lot about uh, you and your mission.
3: Yes, we're not uh, all trying to uh, be the best player in the world. We're not trying to be Ronaldo and Messi. There's only a couple of those guys, um, and but. We have to give the opportunity to make lifelong fans of the sport of soccer, Uh, people who want to kick it around, people who want to watch it uh, all through their life. And uh, soccer is one of those sports that you can play pretty late in life. And it doesn't matter the level, as long as they're enjoying it uh, and going out and uh, getting the exercise or supporting something like a team or whatever. I think that that's what we're getting uh, here in the United States. We've got to continue to build it.
1: Charlie Slago, I always enjoyed my time in the booth with you and just time in general. Thanks for being on the podcast. Good luck in your presidency. I know that uh, we'll ask you to come back to be a part of the podcast during your presidency. I hope you'll do that, Charlie.
3: I will do that. If Dean ask asks, I, I say yes.
1: Great stuff. Charlie Slagle, the next president of the NSCAA. When we come back, more NSCAA convention talk as part of the NSCAA podcast. When you join the National Soccer Coaches
4: Association of America, you join a community who live and breathe the beautiful game just like you do. You join a network of individuals who share many of the same issues, concerns, and questions as you. The NSCAA is dedicated to serving coaches at every level of the game in a number of ways through advocacy, education, and service. Be a part of the coaching community. Learn more and join at NSCAA.com.
1: Moving right along with the NSCAA podcast, I want to thank the great Julie Fowdy for opening the show, the new president of the NSCAA, Charlie Slago, and sticking with key players with the NSCAA. It's my honor to be joined by Sue Ryan, the former 31-year head coach at Stony Brook, where she is still an assistant professor. She works for the Stony Brook Soccer Club, where she coaches both of her kids, boy and a girl at the U10 and U-level respectively, or maybe vice versa. She can clarify that. But nonetheless, Sue Ryan joins me now. Sue, thanks for being with us.
5: Thanks very much for having me.
1: Sue, you are here as the chair of the NSCAA Advocacy Council. And advocacy has been on the mind of the NSCAA for some time, but in the last couple of years, really, it's been front and center. Why is that, Sue? Well,
5: you know, I think it's, it's a big push by the NSCA to serve the members and to advocate for all members and to give them a voice.
1: How has that progress been? Is it going fast enough? Can it go faster? I'm sure there's a lot more work to do, Sue.
5: There is, and I would be remiss if I didn't give a ton of credit to Lisa Cole, who was the first chair. Uh, She did a tremendous uh, amount of work uh, to get this started. I think we're in a good place now. We We are up and running with our eight member groups and our five coaching communities, and we have uh, people on all strategy teams. And so we, we're in a position now for you, whether you are a part of a group because those are the players that you coach or who it is who you are as a coach, we are creating an opportunity for you to be engaged with the NSCAA.
1: Well, speaking of engagement, on Friday morning, pretty early doors as well. It's the Advocacy Hour. Tell us all about it. And we're talking about next Friday at the NSCAA convention.
5: We are so excited about this new program, Dean. uh, We're bribing people with Danish and free coffee (laughs) to uh, come early Friday morning, 8 a.m. And it's a a continental breakfast uh, sponsored by the Advocacy Council will you'll have an opportunity to meet the entire board of the NSCAA will be on hand to welcome people. Uh, Amanda Vandevoort and Lynn Burling-Manuel will be giving a quick welcome to welcome everybody to the meeting. And then we will break up and each group will have an open meeting where people can come. They can sign up to be involved. They can ask questions. They can find ways to network, and it should be a wonderful time uh, for everyone to really connect with whatever group they feel that they would like to be a part of. And the best part is it's not up against any other presentation or demonstration. So even though it's early it it really is at a perfect time.
1: Yeah, what a great way to start your day on Friday in Los Angeles as part of the NSCA convention. And so I'm going to put you on the spot because when you think advocacy, as you said, you think everybody. You mentioned there's eight mm-hmm. different groups. I'm going to ask you to, to name those eight different groups for us. Can you do that for us, Sue?
6: Sure. So
5: so the first part is, who do you coach? So if you're a high school a coach and you coach either girls or boys, we have a group for you. We have one for boys, one for girls. If you're youth and you are working with boys or girls or both, we have a group for you. We have youth girls and youth boys. If you're college, we have a men's college and a women's college. If you want to be a part of our men's college group or our women's college group, we have those two. And then we have professional. We have a professional. So really that encompasses everyone and and everyone, for you to come in and say, you know what, I work with youth and high school, you can go to two meetings. Or I work with uh, boys and girls, you can go to two meetings. Different from that is our coaching communities. And that's uh, a little bit more who you are as a coach. So for those, we have a LGBT group, we have a women's group, we have a black coaches group, we have a Latin American group, and we have a Native American group. So who you are as a coach, as a person, we have a group for you.
1: That is outstanding, being a true advocate all the way across. Speaking of advocates, Julie Foudy opened the show today, and she's got such a strong voice for young girls. you got to be proud of her message every day.
5: Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's wonderful to have uh, people like Julie who are role models for everyone, boys and girls included
1: speaking of role models thirty one years at Stony Brook, you know the role that college soccer continues to play for men and women sue
5: yes it's you know it's exciting because uh we are uh really pushing forward with both our member groups on the men's and the women's side you know we're creating an opportunity. I hear this often where people will say. How, how do you get involved, or how do I make a difference? Um, you know, how do I help better my position at the university, or how do I help better myself as a youth coach, or how do I, how do I better my uh, profession?" Well, these are always getting involved with these groups, are always that you can do that.
1: The ultimate mission of the NSCAA Advocacy Council is what, Sue?
5: The ultimate mission is for uh, the NSCAA to engage the members and create an opportunity for members to unite and to have a common voice and a larger voice by their sheer numbers. You know, sometimes it can be a little lonely at the top. Uh, I talk often with young coaches who go from being an assistant coach to a head coach, uh, especially at uh, the the Division Three level where you don't have a lot of assistants. And so you're in an environment where you have a team as a player and then maybe a team of coaches in, in one area as youth. Now, all of a sudden you're the head coach of a program and you can seemingly be in a silo. Well, this is an opportunity for you to engage and meet with other people who might have the same concerns, um, whatever it may be, Uh, family life balance, health care issues, insurance. Uh, You know, there are many issues like that for youth coaches. So now you express those concerns to us. And the NSCA will work on your behalf.
1: What a great voice, the chair of the NSCAA Advocacy Council, Sue Ryan, one of the legends of the game as well. Sue, we look forward to that advocacy hour and all your work with the NSCAA. Thanks for being a part of the NSCAA podcast.
7: Thanks,
5: Dean. Appreciate it.
1: Sue Ryan, a longtime college soccer coach at Stony Brook. Speaking of college soccer, on Thursday night at the NSCAA convention, 8 o'clock, I have the opportunity to emcee the college Coaches awards reception. And a special speaker will be Zach Ibsen, a young man who starred at UCLA, won a national championship, part of the 92 Olympic team, played in Germany, played with Major League Soccer, was climbing the ladder, but fell into a terrible addiction to crystal meth. Went to rehab, he's all the way back, sober nearly 10 years a young family, and now a soccer coach. You'll love Zach Gibson's story when we come back on the NSCAA podcast.
0: The NSCAA is 75 years strong and continues to provide quality service and benefits to soccer coaches. Whether you're youth, high school, college, or professional coach, the NSCAA works to be a voice for you. Speaking of voice, once again, here's Dean Linke.
1: On Thursday at the convention at 8 o'clock, it will be the College Coaches Awards Reception. And there will be a special presenter there talking about his time in college soccer and then his time after, including the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. As written by Jack Bell in the New York Times on August second, two 2009, Zach Ibsen played soccer in Germany for the United States national team and in Major League Soccer. Growing up on the California coast, he also played the game on the beach. But his life was nearly ruined, not by his addiction to the sport he loves, but to crystal meth. And that kind of sets the table. Zach Gibson. And Zach, first of all, let me just say that it's a delight for me to reconnect with you. I was the press officer for that 92 Olympic team. I was there for most of your 15 caps with the U.S. national team, with Bora as well. I was always a big fan of you, Zach, because first of all, you are one of the most charming people anybody could ever meet, and a great soccer player as well, and a good person. Thanks for being with us, Zach.
8: Oh, Thanks so much for having me, Dean. I appreciate you reconnecting with me, and and I'm Super grateful for the opportunity to talk with you today and be a presenter at the convention.
1: Yeah, we can't wait to have you as part of the college coaches reception. Now, you just spent two years at UCLA before turning pro and being part of that Olympic team and going to Germany and then being with Bora. But what do you remember about that that time at UCLA, Zach?
8: Well, you know, first and foremost... I, uh, I've, I'd known Ziggy Schmidt for most of my life as my uncle went to UCLA. So loved everything about the college experience and was just super fortunate to be a part of that 1990 national championship team. Um, and, you know, that's probably – most soccer players when they look back it's such a great um, time in your career because you're playing for the love of the game.
1: Well that love led you to be a part of the Olympic team as well in Barcelona what do you remember about that time?
8: I remember I remember you and I used to hang out that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) and I definitely remember that uh, you know now looking back Barcelona such a special place so many great memories of the Olympic Village the the experience of being around the greatest athletes in the world you know I was only 19 years old at the time so for me, it was just kind of eyes wide open, and um, and if you take a look at the members of that Olympic team, I feel very fortunate to have just been uh, been surrounded by so many great players and sort of Hall of Fame careers that emerged from uh, you know the the talent that was on that team. Yeah,
1: incredible. All right, for those of uh, the people listening to this podcast and that'll be at that reception, you heard the lead from Jack Bell written back on two thousand nine. I mean, Zach. Tell us uh, exactly what happened. You're in Major League Soccer, failed a drug test, and then you kind of spiraled downward, right?
8: Yeah, you know, usually when you when you fail a drug test, uh, you, you know, usually there's some problems before that. So I wouldn't say that the failed drug test was the start of my demise, but uh, you know, I say that sort of laughingly, but it's not a, no uh, no laughing matter. Sort of what happened to me. Um, you know, I was fortunate to be a lot part of a lot of championship teams and. Uh, you know, unfortunately for those of us who struggle or who are, you know, who are, you know, addicts or alcoholics, there is just nothing that can fill that void. So eventually that's what happened to me. The spiral began early in my career and, uh, you know, I went through a bunch of different drugs and eventually, you know, found my drug of choice, as Jack Bell mentioned there, which was crystal meth. Um, and, you know, you can't stay around very long in professional sports if you're addicted and, and a slave to a drug like that.
1: And how bad was it, though, because there are reports of uh, basically living in a car, right, Zach?
8: Yeah, yeah, you know, it gets pretty bad. So, um, you know, I think the important thing for people to understand and, you know, something that I didn't understand for a really long time is it just really wasn't much of a choice for me It's once I started using Uh, You know, the drug or drugs of choice for me, crystal meth, I just couldn't stop. And, and, you know, that means you pretty much lose everything. So that's eventually what happened to me. I kind of, in retrospect... Uh, it would have been nice if that happened quicker, but yeah, eventually, no, no money, no car, living in a van, and, and you know, rock bottom.
1: Okay, but you told me that your family stuck with you, and it was your family that pushed you to go to a rehab center and, and come out of this spiral, right?
8: Yeah, it took a very swift push. In other words, they pretty much uh, you know kicked me out. And, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a guy that you wanted to be around at that time. I, I loved your intro where you talked about I was a great guy and everything, and. And, you know, at one point I was, and then at one point I wasn't. It's kind of like uh, like what you said, highs and lows. I was pretty low, uh, not a guy that you wanted to be around. And eventually my family said we'd had enough, you either – uh, you know, you can you can uh, go wherever you want, but you just can't stay here.
1: Talk about uh, where you went and how long that process took to where you could now walk out and then tell us how long you've been sober.
8: Yeah, so eventually I, I tried just about everything, but uh, the place that, you know, where the magic happened for me was a place called uh, Diablo Valley Ranch. It was a social model program. I walked onto the ranch and they put me to work scrubbing toilets and washing dishes and it was the ultimate uh, smack in the face of humility, and, um, and that, that was, uh, it took you know, it takes what it takes, but I was there for, what was I there for, 60 days? Yeah, 60 days, and then I've been sober ever since March 1st, 2008. So I'm coming up on nine years, and I uh, feel so very fortunate and grateful for every day that I get.
1: So you came out of that sober, and you also came out of that with the ability to return to a high level of soccer as part of U.S. Beach Soccer, Correct,
8: correct. The miracle continued. Yeah, I came out and I I let everything go. And that's kind of what they told me to do is just let everything go and see what comes back to you. And there was just never any question that I wanted to play soccer again. And uh, and uh, Eddie Soto was the coach of the uh, U.S. national team, beach soccer team. He called me in and um, and, you know, because I'd turned my life around and I was now a man of principle and I was dependable and reliable and all these attributes that you would not have associated with me, you know, even just a year and a half beforehand, he gave me the chance to be a part of the team and actually named me captain of the beach soccer team. So,
1: And you actually played in a World Cup, right, for beach soccer? Played in a World Cup prior
8: to my final bout with uh, addiction. Um, but when I came out of DVR after 2008, we went down to uh, it was Puerto Vallarta, Mexico and uh, we lost on a penalty kick shootout to Mexico to qualify for the World Cup.
1: Okay, but obviously returning as captain, and then, you know, you mentioned your family, your girlfriend at the time, fiance at the time, I think, even also kicked you out, and now you've been married to her for how many years with a couple beautiful kids, right, Zach?
8: Yeah, we've been married for coming up on five years. We have two. uh, my, My lovely wife, Tara, yeah, she definitely... Is the uh, is the the strength and the courage behind the man here? Um, behind every man is a better woman, and that's definitely the case here. And then, uh, yeah, we have two beautiful children. My son Otis is nine, and my daughter Flo is six. Yeah, and we are what we call happy, joyous, and free after all that. So yeah, it's just a feel very fortunate to have had somebody. Uh, willing to stick makes me through all the
1: tough times. And part of that joy and freedom is your job as a high school phys ed teacher and a soccer coach on the side, right?
8: Yeah. middle. So I teach middle school PE, eighth grade PE teacher in Palo Alto. and, uh, And yeah, coaching a lot of soccer on the side, you know, it's definitely something I'm interested in pursuing. So teaching and coaching, I feel like they go hand in hand. And, you know, I couldn't have thought I couldn't have made up a better job for myself.
1: Well, I love uh, your recovery all the way back to U.S. Beach soccer and now as a proud dad and a wonderful husband and a guy who's willing to share his story next Thursday as part of the College Coaches Awards reception. What's going to be your one lead behind with everybody there that night, Zach? Yeah,
8: you know, I I love I love the way you frame the conversation with the uh, roots, Uh, reality and redemption. And I think the final R there is just kind of relevant. It's like my story aside from being, you know, a human interest story and, you know, kind of an entertaining eight to 10 minutes life story is that, you know, I'm, I'm, my challenge to all the soccer coaches in the room is that, you know, there's, I can guarantee there's, you know, a player or two that are currently on their team or has previously been on their team or that they're going to recruit in the future that, you know, no one, no one signs up to be an addict or an alcoholic, but when things don't look right and the performance suffers and, and, you know, we really look at our job to bring out the best in everybody, it's super important um, for a college coach to be able to have sit down and have that conversation with that player and just ask the tough questions and, and provide the resources that are, uh, you know, necessary and available for anybody that may or may not, you know, be struggling with figuring out how to live life like I did, you know.
1: What a great way to tie it all together. Reconnected with Zach Ibsen and Zach Ibsen, Talking about that redemption and keeping it real, he will be the featured speaker at the 2017 NSCA convention as part of the College Coaches Awards Reception. Zach, so looking forward to seeing you after so many years. Thanks for uh, at least teasing us a little bit about your message. I can't wait to hear it live and in color next week in Los Angeles.
8: Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Dean. I'm really looking forward to it.
0: By being a member of the NSCAA, you are a part of the world's largest network of soccer coaches. Here, you can find like-minded people passionate about bettering themselves to help better their players and ultimately to better the game.
1: It's time now to put the spotlight on youth soccer, and we are delighted to have Angelo Planels, who is a registered dietitian, works at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics in the greater Seattle area as their media spokesperson. And he is concerned about what our young players are putting into their stomachs, their nutrition, and he'll cover that at the NSCA convention. Angel, thanks for being with us.
7: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, you've got a big Friday with two important sessions. Tell us all about them, will you, please?
7: You know, with USU soccer, they have the two zones, zone one for players age 6 through 11 or 6 through 12, and then zone two, 13 through 18. And what we wanted to do was put together two sessions that captivated what as a registered dietitian and as a soccer coach is concerning. And I'll just give you a brief background on myself before I get into it. I grew up in New Orleans and, you know, I played soccer for most of my life. I recall being a young child. I want to say I was probably 15 or 16 years old and we were playing in the finals of a tournament. Out of my 16 teammates, like 10 of us were eating Whoppers or Big Macs, like 15 minutes before we were actually playing a soccer game. And when I went into college, I took a course in nutrition and I kind of put it together that, you know, clearly many of my teammates and I were, I guess, considered genetically blessed to be able to do a lot of great things with our body. But, you know, what if nutrition would be the difference between someone going into premier or high school or making it to the college professional level? So, you know, nutrition is a very big part of, fueling for success. So with the two sessions, I really wanted to focus on what it takes for us to have success. And with the young players, the 6 through 11s, this is really the backbone. One of the reasons why I felt this was important to focus this area is usually in the youth game, most of our coaches are focused with the with the older players. And these are the kids that, are, you know, win state cups or go to big tournaments. And usually the young kids are kind of afterthoughts. And so I wanted to change that because, you know, if we have bad habits at young ages, this will carry on over into... Adulthood.
1: Here's the deal, Angel. I don't think there's enough focus, particularly from the parents, on hey, are they eating right? Are they eating at the right times? And so on.
7: Exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll ask you a quick question before I kind of get into what I wanted to talk about. You know, what are some of the different reasons that you eat, Dean?
1: Uh, well, I love food. Love
7: it. <laughs> okay. I love food too. Any other reasons?
1: Well, obviously, sustainability, right? You want to keep that engine rolling for sure, Correct. Angel.
7: So, yeah, you know, people eat for a number of different reasons. We, because we're hungry or we have a good appetite. People usually eat when they're stressed out. We're fueling up for sports or fueling to recover after participation in sports. If we're bored, we eat. We eat kind of based on how our budget is. So, if our money's. Tight, we might eat a little different from when our checking account looks pretty good. Or if we have metabolism or hormonal fluctuations or people taking medications or we can eat for nostalgia. And then you wanted to talk about 6 through 12. How are we doing as adults in America? And, you know, I think as a registered dietitian working in healthcare, you know, these are kind of these telling statistics. And I know that this is a soccer podcast, but I always feel this probably gives a little more power to the presentation is... There are 117 million adults that have one or more preventable chronic diseases, and most of those diseases are attributed to poor dietary quality, physical inactivity. From 2009 to 2012, 65% of females, 70% of males were considered overweight or obese. And, you know, the costs are skyrocketing. So, you know, are our role models failing us? I wanted to really kind of get to the meat of trying to take it back to the basics, get the parents to understand that, you know, we don't need or we don't expect people to go from one step from eating fast food to eating organic, local, sustainable in, in one swift motion, but just kind of moving the barometer over towards more a more health-conscious lifestyle, which will then fuel for performance.
1: Where can people learn more about uh... Your message in particular as far as nutrition for our young future stars.
7: Well, there's a couple of different websites. The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics has wonderful information. There is a option where people can definitely seek out a registered dietitian on the website. One of one of the best things that I that I really love about the game, the way it's evolving is there's a lot of ancillary services out there that can help our players perform to the best of their abilities. Definitely sports nutrition, sports psychology, performance enhancement, you know, different ways like that. So people can check in with me at ACP Nutrition or you can go on the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics website. There's a find the RD or there's actually a scan sports cardiovascular and um, nutrition website that has sports dietitian specific where you can find a sports dietitian in your area. I did a survey with USU soccer. I want to say in 2006 when I finished my master's degree. Sam Snow helped me push it out all across the country. We had a lot of good data. And there is a very large interest in people wanting to know about nutrition and, you know, what's out there. Players want to improve, you know, when they're teens and parents want to feed their children well.
1: Angel, that topic, this topic is so important. We're so glad that uh, you're going to be able to present and get us more informed on eating right as young players and not, you know, young people. In fact, how did you get involved with the NSCA? Was it through U.S. Youth Soccer?
7: Yes. Well, I guess uh, this will be my third time presenting with U.S. Youth Soccer. Last year, I presented at the N S A convention as well. I just am loving the opportunity to to give back and I feel very passionate that I get to blend two awesome aspects of my life. I love healthcare and I love soccer. I've been playing since I was young. I've been coaching for it's amazing to say this year will be eighteen years that I've been coaching youth soccer and I've coached in New Orleans, in New York City and now in Seattle with Bobby Howe and the rest of the crew at Emerald City Football Clubs. Dropping
1: names. We we drop names all the time. I've known Bobby Howe for a long, long time. He's yes. one of the all time yes. good guys.
7: So just to wrap up, nutrition is a very important part of the game and and especially when we're looking at our players, you know, many players might be able to get away with poor nutritional habits, but when we have over fueled players, players tend to be sluggish. There may be decreased flexibility or speed. They're usually gaining more fat than muscle When they're under fuel, they're lethargic. They may have decreased reaction time speed or they're losing both fat and muscle. And then definitely one of the things, poor nutrition with low energy intake. We can have iron deficiency. We may have eating disorders or delayed healing. So if you get injured, it takes you a longer time to get on the field. And with the players that are 6 to 11, we're looking at now and later, wanting optimal growth during their preteen years and fueling for performance. And when, as they get older, they're being more aware of their making better food choices when they're teenagers and adults, are going to feel less paralyzed. And so the last thing is, I don't like to use the words good and bad when we talk about foods, but I think that there are better food choices that we can make. So instead of having French fries or deep fat fried veggies, let's choose more baked potatoes, sweet potato, colorful veggies. Instead of having fried chicken strips or nuggets, choose more baked or grilled chicken. There's a lot of different things that we can do. Anytime you go to eat at a fast food restaurant or eat anywhere, you can look at the menu and you can usually make a better food choice. And that will help us in our performance as players. That will help us as we are growing into teens and becoming adults, and hopefully we can improve our health as a society.
1: Good stuff, Angel. I look forward to seeing both your sessions on Friday. If you want to learn more about nutrition, these are Can't Miss with Angel Pinnells. Check the convention schedule. But Angel, better yet, tell us exactly when and where you're going to
7: be on Friday. So I will be in room 505. Um, From 11 to 12, we're going to talk about Zone 1 Nutrition, which is ages 6 to 12, And from 2.45 to 3.45, we'll also be in 5.05, speaking about Zone 2, 13- to 18-year-old players. And the first session will focus more on the basics, and I'll talk about fueling tactics for championship performance. In Zone 2, I'm going to start talking about tournament prep, getting ready for games, injuries, and supplements, and kind of like the players getting ready to step into a more competitive environment or maybe entering college.
1: Fascinating stuff. Angel Planells. thanks for covering youth soccer on this week's NSCAA podcast.
7: No worries. Thank you very much. And, uh, oh, I also forgot to mention that uh, I noticed you've had a Seattle theme the first two sessions with Leslie on the first podcast and Siggy and Laura last week. So go Sounders.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well said. We're rocking Seattle time for sure. Angel, thanks for being with us. No worries. Have a great rest of your day. We will do that, Angel, and we will wrap up this edition of the NSCAA podcast with Michael Raboska, the Director of High Performance Development for Toronto FC. That around the corner on the NSCAA podcast.
0: The 2017 NSCAA convention will be unlike any before. Taking over the downtown Los Angeles Convention Center January 11th through 15th. Network with over 11,000 peers at one of the education sessions, the extensive exhibit hall, or one of many social functions, including the college coaches reception and the All-American Luncheon. With more space and unique experiences, you won't want to miss out on the largest gathering of soccer coaches and administrators in the world. Register today at NSCAA.com.
1: Welcome back to the NSCAA podcast. This section, the professional section. And for that, we're thrilled to not necessarily talk to a coach, but a man who's making a difference for the team. Michael Rabaska is the director of high performance development for Toronto FC. Yes, that same Toronto FC team that made it all the way to the MLS Cup championship game, and Michael will be featured at the 2017 convention in Los Angeles. Michael, thanks for being with us.
6: Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
1: I know, Michael, you're working right now on your presentation. Tell us the name of your presentation in Los Angeles.
6: Uh, it's Cognitive Load and Training Considerations. All right, it'll let's be a field session.
1: It'll be a field session. All right, let's break that down. Cognitive load. Tell us what you mean by that exactly.
6: Cognitive load and cognitive load theory is essentially how human beings learn. So all the components that that go into it. So it's a theory. It's not. We'll probably field a lot of questions on can you improve cognitive load? And and the the short answer to that is no, because it's a theory. The longer answer is you you would have to work on uh, your working memory. So there'll be a lot of information about that.
1: Okay. So as we get to know you a little bit better, as the Director of High Performance Development with Toronto FC, what is your day-to-day responsibilities there?
6: So I have uh, two roles. At Toronto FC, one is as an assistant coach. So each and every day with the first team, I'm on the field uh, working with first team players, either in the classroom or on the field, depending on their specific program, their individual needs. And then my second second job is uh, to work with the academy, uh, essentially in our high performance department, which used to be titled uh, Cognitive Development. So um, we spend a lot of time working uh, with concepts that involve neuroscience, neuroscience theories, and uh, trying to incorporate those in in a way that uh, can enhance performance.
1: All right. So let's talk about how the NSCAA said, you know what, this guy knows exactly what he's doing as it relates to cognitive load and some of these other things as a member of Toronto FC, a very successful program. How did you make that connection to say, yeah, I'll do this field presentation?
6: But I don't know that I'm an expert in the area, so I uh, I feel very fortunate with the NSCA and some of the uh, connections I've had. Um, first, the when I when I went to Toronto FC about three years ago, uh, in terms of this specific position, we have a lot of positions out uh, in MLS and throughout the world that uh, focus on sports science. But my position is a little little more unique in the sense that I'm really focused on the brain, how it can enhance performance. So I think just the, just in the uniqueness of, of my position, uh, that helped. I also um, work closely with John DeWitt, who works with uh, Houston Dash uh, Dynamo and their academy, also with uh, Afghanistan's national, uh, women's national team. And uh, that relationship. Extends back all the way to uh, the early 90s, and my work with him, uh, collaboration with him, has always been. And it's been a strong friendship, but also a strong professional
1: relationship. Michael Robasca, the director of cognitive development for Toronto FC, his focus at Toronto FC is on cognitive and neural development in athletes, which combines his work experience as an occupational therapist and his history in soccer. Now, your role, indeed, it is unique because your role as Director of Cognitive Development is the first of its kind in North America.
6: Yeah, um, I think we we are starting to see signs of uh, people paying a little closer attention to the brain. We've always paid attention to, we, we titled it mental And mental encompassed everything from social, psychology, all kinds of, I think it was a dumping ground. Life, you know, how you work on and off the field. At Toronto FC, we've broken it down into eight areas. Uh, Generally, I'm responsible for four of those areas. And and we really break them out so that uh, they're clearly defined, understood. By our players, both first team and academy. And we really try and take a real individualized, and measured approach, a purposeful approach to um, you know, how we develop and uh, improve their performance.
1: All right, Michael, if I went to Greg Vanny and Robin Frazier and Nick Thesloff and Dan Collegeman, those guys I know pretty well, and said, hey, what do you think of uh, what Michael Roboska is doing as the director of cognitive development? What do you think they would say?
6: I, I, I think they would say I bring a unique perspective. Um, at times to the discussion uh things not often uh not often uh, heard, not often discussed uh it it's it's the idea of not just saying the same thing over and over and over again, but uh, trying to uncover trying to have coaches especially take into consideration other um another mentality or another approach to how they approach players and that sounds incredibly vague but Instead of just saying to a player over and over again, do this, do this, do this, with just A, B, and C, sometimes it's going out of the alphabet. Uh, looking at a numeric or looking at something just to change, change the thinking, change the approach, change the mentality.
1: All right. So speaking of that mentality, what about the cognitive and neural development as relates to players coming back from injuries? Is there a process there as well where you get involved?
6: Yeah, occasionally and uh, sometimes very effectively. We look at injuries as an opportunity to grow and to improve, not necessarily that you're down and we just Rehab your hamstring, and then uh, you you get to come back. Or rehab your your groin, and then you'll be ready to go. Um, inside that, there's all types of things that we can look at and consider. We can look at their goals, how that's impacted by the injury. You know, typically players set season goals or objectives, and now they've had an injury that will impact that goal or objective, and now we need to, you know, we need to look at it again so that they have a clear understanding of what the remainder of their season will will look like. There's a lot of things that uh, can be done during that time to enhance different systems that we can take the opportunity now that they're off the field to uh, look at improving, enhancing those areas so that they can uh, come back uh, better than before.
1: And how about a player's confidence or lack thereof? Because oftentimes, Michael, they do say that comes between the ears.
6: Yeah. The important thing to recognize uh, and that we we stress uh, regularly is that there's a physiological thing going on with them at the moment. So what I mean by that is their injury is physiological. It's not not a mental thing. So there's a lot of uh, conversation, a lot of discussion that goes on to really find out where they're at, where they're placing blame, if you want to use the, if you want to use that word. But really going on, and I can tell you a quick story. We had a player uh, not too long ago who uh, was struggling with confidence, or so we thought. That was his. Uh, He just had some racing thinking and all this kind of stuff that goes along with maybe a poor performance. And the circumstances that he found himself in in the game were maybe unfair. What wound up happening with the player is he was fighting off an infection. We're all fighting off infections some way, shape or form. Uh, in our body at any given time, um, I simply asked for a blood test to be done, and it wound up that his white blood count was so high that that's an indication that he's fighting off an infection. Just give him some antibiotics, and then he can start thinking a little clearer. And that thinking and feeling part was very important. So really, you know, not a whole lot of intervention. His confidence was was not there or there, but we just need to get to the bottom of his physiology, and then we could have a better discussion about his performance, a clearer discussion.
1: Speaking of clear discussion, Saturday, January. January 14th, 9.30 to 10.30, the quicko Demo Field 2 Cognitive Load and Training Considerations, led by Michael Roboska, the Director of Cognitive Development for Toronto FC. Clearly it's working. One one penalty kick away from winning the MLS Cup for sure, Michael Roboska. Delighted to have you a part of the NSCAA convention. Thanks for being with us on the NSCAA podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Michael, and we thank all of our guests. Julie Foudy, Charlie Slagle, Sue Ryan, Angel Pinnells, and Zach Ibsen. For everybody at the NSCAA, including Lynn Burling-Manuel and Sean Chevrolet. I'm Dean Linkey. We'll see you next week for a Wednesday release of the NSCAA podcast. We'll kick off the NSCA convention and the same day we will release the podcast. Looking forward to it. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening to the NSCAA podcast. When you join the National Soccer Coaches Association
4: of America, you join a community who live and breathe the beautiful game just like you do. You join a network of individuals who share many of the same issues, concerns, and questions as you. The NSCAA is dedicated to serving coaches at every level of the game in a number of ways through advocacy, education, and service. Be a part of the coaching community. Learn more and join at NSCAA.com.